correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're sort of saying that in finance, it's much more preferable to err on the side of having too much bias than it is to err on the side of having too much variance. So I wrote an article once that people learn in school to be persistent in life. I said backtesting people should not be per persistent in life. If they find something that doesn't work, they should forget it immediately. Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo, and Jason Russell are principals of Resolve Asset Management. Due to industry regulations, they will not discuss any of Resolve's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by the principals are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for resolve-masterclass. Hello and welcome to the Gestalt U podcast. This is your host, Adam Butler. I am the Chief Investment Officer of Resolve Global. And today I recorded quite a lengthy session with Mike Harris, who started trading rates and derivatives over 30 years ago. He's also the founder of Price Action Lab and the developer of the first commercial software for identifying parameterless patterns in price action, which he began developing and using over 20 years ago. In the past 10 years, he's worked on the development of DLPAL, which is a software program designed to identify short-term anomalies in market data for use with fixed and machine learning models. This was quite a wide-ranging interview and went on for quite a while, though it seemed like just a short time because we had a passion for the topics. Um, but we covered backtesting and generating trading signals on an Atari console back in the 80s, loss compression and forecasting, data mining, including micro features, micro patterns, and trend following, the hit rate, payoff ratio, profit factor, and what Mike Harris deems the profitability rule, which seems very interesting to me as an objective data mining bias, of course, and data snooping. He runs seven weekly strategies, which we get into in some depth. And um, we also talk about the direction of research and probability. This was a really interesting conversation and, and highly enlightening. Michael provided a wealth of new insights into emerging financial technologies. So really hope you enjoy it. Thank you again for listening. All right. I'm here with Mike Harris from currently Price Action Lab. I believe Mike has many, many years of experience in trading markets, in machine learning and investment strategy design. And I'm excited to hear how Mike found himself in this grisly 
business and the path that he took to found Price Action Lab and some of the lessons that he learned along the way. Before we get started, maybe Mike, introduce yourself and maybe give us a little bit of your background. Okay, thank you for the invitation. Uh, nice uh, meeting you, Adam and Annie. Annie, right? My name is Michael Harris. Uh, I started trading about 30 years ago, actually. I'm old. <laughs> and I was a student at uh, Columbia. I was working for AT&T in uh, robotics for about eight years. I designed uh, high-speed robots for electronics assembly. I have a patent with AT&T and at some point uh, I was working on my PhD on uh, large space structures. At some point I really got tired with the educational environment. After so many years I had already two masters and I was working on my PhD. I was working for AT&T and I thought to make a transfer to the financial world after the 1987 crash, the markets became popular <laughs> because before the crash, no one cared. It was all value investing, as you know. Some uh, CTAs and uh, some uh, trading in stocks was non-existent and it was all futures, currencies and commodities. I took uh, another degree at Columbia and uh, I studied financial engineering, portfolio management. Forecasting, it was my favorite subject. And I joined Wall Street. Uh, my first job was uh, kind of boring. It was the money markets uh, desk. And I had to calculate the gap of the desk every day, write a computer program, you know, assets minus liabilities, deposits uh, minus uh, loans, and how much they had to finance. I had my Bloomberg terminal, you know, then Bloomberg was in Fortran, if you know. So I had my Bloomberg terminal and I was also in charge of uh, looking at basis trading in bonds. The difference between the cash bond, the latest cash bond that was trading, and the futures. There was some arbitrage there some money to be made for big portfolios, okay, big uh, pockets. And I was uh, looking into that. That's how I started. Basically, I was not a retail trader or someone who read a book about technical analysis, you know. Next to me were the Forex guys and they were swearing and throwing telephones on one against the other all day. And I learned so many things about Forex trading. I still have nightmares. <laughs> about these forex traders. I believe you. Brave people. And many of them women too. The time, many, you know, 50% were women, very, very astute, very smart. They were trading billions every day. Face value, of course, you know, face value. But most was commercial, commercial transactions for companies that were buying overseas and they had to hedge. It was getting boring. I thought of, uh, I had learned, uh, you know, latest uh, portfolio management theories, uh, fixed income. I started in fixed income. 
So I moved to developing algos for optimization of portfolios in fixed income. Like I used the hillside, hill climb algorithm for linear programming optimization of portfolios to to create, you are familiar with all this, I, I, I'm sure, uh, to create index tracking portfolios with minimum duration or maximum yield or, or whatever. If you want to track uh, some arbitrary portfolio, I could do that. That was a very, very good algorithm. I still have it today. He runs over in DOS. <laughs> you know, I had to learn everything, Fabozzi, you know, books. I had to learn anything about duration, convexity, and program these things for floating rate nodes, for any conceivable zero coupons, you know, it was but I really liked it. I really liked it. This program, you could put your portfolio of bonds, maybe 100 bonds, and say, now I want to minimize the yield of this for all the duration. And then the portfolio will tell you which bonds to sell and which bonds to buy from the universe. And that's how I started. I'd love to hear more about that. So for example, you could also introduce some constraints. So I'd like to maximize yield subject to the portfolio having a duration less than five or something like that. Not only that, exactly. But not only that, also constraints on individual bonds. Like this issue because of credit rating, corporate bond, the department said we are not going to put more than 2% of the portfolio. So box constraints on individual bonds and sectors of bonds and that kind of stuff. Exactly. Now I see you understand everything about optimization because it was a huge linear programming optimization subject to multiple constraints. And the nice thing about the hill climb is that you don't need an initial feasible solution. That's why I changed it and I programmed it myself from scratch and it would convert to a feasible solution. It was beautiful. I mean, the bonds, so structured, mathematical, orderly. I mean, it was for geeks, you know, I mean, so nice. And then you go into stock market and it's a chaos. It is an absolute mess. Absolutely. And now let's make a quantum jump. You have all these guys and analysts that treat bonds like stocks. Oh, they say yields went up. These bondholders could be destroyed. Come on, you guys. I mean, I did immunization of portfolios, immunization. The insurance companies, they hold the bonds to maturity because they have liabilities, pensions to pay. They never sell the bonds. They never lose money if the yields uh, go up. What they do, they immunize with futures, swaps, and uh, that time. Now there are infinite products. They can use structured products to immunize, immunization like a vaccine for interest rates. Uh, these people, someone told me the other day, but the bond rolls. <laughs> Not for the major bond owners, they don't. <laughs> United States government has to pay the principal when it expires, except if it's callable. That's another thing, you know. And, and anyway, so I worked on this. It was nice, mathematical. And then this is what changed my whole course. 
I had a classmate at Colombia, he was a very wealthy woman, very smart. Her husband approached me and said, look, I know you work in Wall Street. Can you help me to backtest a trading system? That was 1991. Now, had you been backtesting bond trading systems or were you just working on arbitrage problems and portfolio optimization problems until that point? I was not backtesting then. That was the next step. I was uh, talking with an investment bank, Solomon Brothers, it was called then, to go there to actually backtest these things. And I didn't get to that because I met uh, this person and he said, I have a good idea and we have the money. Can you help me to backtest an idea about trading currency futures? And we're going to make a contract and, and you're going to get 20% of the profits. I said, very good idea. 20%. But the catch is that in the beginning, we are going to put the money to test it. So I backtest this idea. It was like trend following. He had this idea about trend following. It was not working well. And something interesting. I started writing all these basic programs to backtest and a program came in the market, it was already the market, called System Writer Plus. To backtest, the company was called Omega Research. Do you know how the company is called today? Trade, trade Station. It was the Cruz Brothers. They came up with the first program to backtest. In 1990, and we bought two copies, one of the first customers. He had a huge database with futures data, very well written. He had easy language, almost the same that is today, a few changes. We bought this and to be able to backtest fast. We didn't have to write the code. I started backtesting and I, I found a similar system that looked good. Still using primarily trend as your features? Yeah, trend following. I will get into this, what happened to trend following during that time. It was a regime change happening during that time. At that time, E.D. Shaw, Simons were just beginning. Actually, Simons had a lot of problems during that time. So... I backtest and I say, okay, we're going to put down, uh, anyway, I forgot my disclaimer, nothing I say in this podcast is uh, financial advice for everyone to know, okay? I guess it's obvious because I'm not a financial advisor. So we put down 200k thousand in an account in a investment bank, World Trade Center, and uh, we started trading. It was like uh, February. Of 1990. 91. And what I do? I was traveling because I had a job. And how would I keep up? I buy an Atari computer like the one they had in Terminator. I download the program in basic to the Atari. Now the company thought it would not work. I called them. They said it would not work, but it did. So I had my trend following program in the Atari. And it still works today. I still have it. I would call the broker at the close when I was traveling. He would give me 
foreclosing prices of the four major futures, British pound, Swiss franc, yen, and a Deutschmark. I would plug them in and it would tell me two things if I had a new order for the open. And when should the price go for next close to have an order? So I will feel calm, just projecting the moving averages and the indicators and everything else. Obvious. A lot of people do that. I want to press pause on this because I think it's just absolutely remarkable. So you've got this trade station that would normally run on, what was it built to run on back in 1991? DOS. DOS. Okay. So like a Windows PC and you were able to install trade station on an Atari game console? I backtested the strategy in System Writer Plus, the product of the Cruz Brothers, and then I copied the algo in BASIC and I downloaded the code to Atari. And so you could travel and it's almost like the Atari was like a modern laptop and you would just plug it into your TV in the hotel room or something and bring a keyboard with you and you were able to travel with this makeshift laptop and run trade signals from your hotel. Yeah, people thought I was a lunatic. (laughs) That's fantastic. I love that. By November, we have made 60%. And I sit down and he tells me, we have a lot of connections who can raise a lot of money. Of course, we're going to make less because there are many brokers and everything. We are not going to make 20%. We are going to make less, but it's going to be a lot of money. I said, wait a second. I was one of the good students in probability and statistics. At Columbia University, the course the class was starting like 50 people inside probability and statistics graduate course. After 15 minutes, there were only three, four people left in the class. They saw the writing on the wall in terms of the mathematical rigor and the concepts and realized they weren't prepared. They walked out. They went to the cafeteria. It was nuts. The course, it was difficult. It was one of my favorite to listen to probability and statistics. People couldn't take it. They just dropped out. The teacher came inside and said, look, I have to tell you guys, no one will get an A, a few will get a B, and most will get a C, and many will get a D. <laughs> In this, uh... So I tell him, wait a second. Are we going to manage money of other people? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to manage anyone's money. I tell him, look, we were lucky 100%. It's not the strategy. We were just 100% lucky because you guys are nice people. You have positive energy and we were lucky. And it has nothing to do with the strategy, with the moving averages, the RSIs, the MACD and all this. He said, no, it's a very good system. I said, look, let's do a Monte Carlo simulation. This can produce about 80% drawdown in the future. He said, no way. I will use stocks. I said, I take my money and I go to California to meet my girlfriend because I was going to go stay there forever. (laughs) So I just want to make sure we're clear. You did a Monte Carlo analysis of the live returns of the seven or eight months live returns. 
bootstrap with replacement. I asked my professor first at Columbia, I went to see him. I parked outside of the university and they broke my car. <laughs> I remember Monte Carlo simulation inside, breaking the car outside. <laughs> so you had what, like 200 bars of data and you just sort of block bootstrapped or just bootstrapped with replacement the 200 bars of data? Yes, yes. Yeah, so what kind of volatility were you running? Like a 40%, 50% vol? We were overtrading. You know, we were taking big risks. And I said, if you drop your risk down to reasonable Richard Dennis levels, because Richard Dennis was a big one that time, you know, he was like the god of trading. If you drop it down to 2%, better to put your money in a zero coupon. The rates were like 7-8% at that time. Put it in a zero coupon, get the discount, take your wife and go to Bahamas. So the reason that was the case, so imagine, and I'm just going to make numbers up, but imagine you did 60% at a volatility of 40%. So if you were to take that volatility down to that level of volatility, then the expected return on the portfolio was worse than what you would get on a 10-year treasury bond or a high-grade corporate bond. Yeah, something like that. Maybe better, but then you can't justify to investors. They have high expectations. And I said, no, I will take my cut <laughs> and take off because we had an account to, together there and I will take, uh, I don't want the 20%. I don't want to manage money. So I take my money and I go to California. I said, here is a system. I give it to you for free. I mean, together, but it was his idea originally. I fixed it. Take the system. And I wish you best of luck. I live uh, to California. You know, I was trying to... The job market was not good there for financials. Well, 1991, 1992, there was a major commercial real estate collapse. The, the banking sector was in rough shape. And yeah, it was a very bad climate to be looking for work in the financial sector. Anyway, I liked it in California. You know, I lived in uh, Santa Monica. We lost touch. I had my system there. I was trading myself bond futures. I loved bond futures for myself. After two years, you know, of course, life in California is always too short. <laughs> you either become a surfer or you leave and you go back to real life. I returned to real life. What happened to the guy? You know something? He almost lost all the money. Someone tells me. Were you tracking the performance? Like, were you also able to see what the portfolio would have done? Yeah, yeah. He lost the money, but had he stayed in, he would have recovered. But the drawdown was like 50%, 55%, 60 The investors told him, stop. At least we get half of the money back. So he lost the money and uh, he didn't continue. I worked for a company forecasting freight rates. That was uh, my next job. The market was not very good. I had a nice job and they also traded commodities. So I was doing my analysis and everything. And uh, this is how I started. And then uh, I realized that trend following was dead. So how did you come to that realization? It's not my realization because I'm a small guy. If you listen to Jim Simon's interview at TED, 
the famous Simons. I have an article in my blog. He says trend following was good in the 60s and in the 70s. Then by the 80s, it was not very good. And he shows an example of a chart of a commodity and he says I could use a 25-day moving average and make money. In the 80s, you could use a 20, but then that stopped because it became overcrowded. All the smart guys realized. How did you realize though? Like you weren't sort of listening to Jim Simons and... No, 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 no. That's a recent. How did you come to that conclusion at the time? What analysis were you doing and what type of thinking were you applying that allowed you to recognize? It was just a feeling that actually I wrote an article in Active Trader in about 2001 that you can either go for trend following or you can simulate or realize the same returns by shorter trend trades. So at that time, I saw the drawdown coming also from simulations and everything and testing in trend following systems. And what happened? In the past, they worked because serial correlation in returns was very high. And when you have serial high serial correlation, like 0.5, 0.6. Everything you do with moving averages, like fast moving averages, works. Like, for instance, the TA people, classical TA, they were fooled by the serial correlation and they attributed forecasting power to patterns. I can sort of see, because classical TA, I mean, obviously you've got a lot of stuff like cup and handle patterns and double bottoms and head and shoulders and all this kind of stuff. But a lot of it is just drawing trend lines. I guess the idea was they were observing serial correlation in the form of these, or perceived that they were seeing serial correlation in the form of these, drawing these trend lines and assuming that the trend was going to persist. Is that sort of where you're coming from there? It's more subtle. What happened is the following. TA was an effort of lossy compression. Lossy compression is when you try to describe a stochastic process with a language, with an alphabet. The alphabet are the patterns, the head and shoulders, the pennants, the trail lines, everything, everything. And this is a compression scheme for the purpose of forecasting. You try to compress the data and you lose information about volatility and every other things, but this is not what is important. When they talked about confirmation of the pattern, because in TA there is this thing about it has to be confirmed. You have a head and shoulders and it breaks the neckline. And they say if it breaks the neckline, the market will go down. Yes, but if you have serial correlation, what does it mean? It means that there is high probability that lower prices will be followed by lower prices. So the alphabet goes random. Actually, they were arbitraging serial correlation. And this is why serial correlation disappeared by 2000. Because TA became so popular, it was so easy to teach and learn. Everybody started using it. People made computer models to use it. 
like pattern identification. It would tell you when head and shoulders were forming or a pennant or a trend line or and the serial correlation disappeared from the markets. That was the main driver of these uh, formations. You've mentioned that before, and I remember we've sort of discussed this back and forth informally over Twitter or what have you, and I certainly observed that over the last 10 years. I was a little confounded with your statement that you sort of observed this in 2001, because I think if, if I recall, sort of looking at the trend-following indices that 2001 to, say, late 2008, trend-following, diversified trend-following anyways, was actually quite good, and it was certainly a good sort of portfolio diversifier, but... Is that not what you were observing, or are we just talking past each other? I didn't observe it. It was my feeling to go with data mining of uh, short-term anomalous price action rather than trend following. It was my feeling. And I also found it intellectually stimulating and challenging to go with that rather than waiting for the moving average cross and then sitting there for... 275 days until I get the exit signal. So what happened with TA is uh, by middle 90s, there was no serial correlation. And then after that, it became negative correlation. And you know, recently we had extreme anti-correlation in uh, stock market returns and mini reversion works. I give you a statistics which you may find interesting. In the last 252 days, Almost 70% of down days in S&P 500 were followed by up days. That's an all-time record. I have data since 1940. This is by the deep. And trend following of the old kind, the Jim Simons kind, does not work in this environment. What you have to do is to increase the lag. And that's why modern trend following talk about the 12-month moving average. The problem is that you open yourself to larger drawdowns. If you have, you know, the moving average lag is large, by the time the system responds, you already have a large drawdown. My own understanding or thinking on this is that the longer the moving average, the more you're capturing the long-term drift and the less you're capturing whatever serial correlation dynamics that you think that you were seeking. It's sort of like capturing the drift with a stop loss is, is sort of the character that you're seeking with longer term moving averages. And the shorter you go, the more it begins to resemble a straddle type strategy or some kind of long volatility type strategy. But the longer look back, it ends up just being mostly capturing the drift. Would you generally agree with that characterization? Well, but in the past it worked. You know, this is the Now it doesn't, so you have to go anyway with what you're saying, the long moving average. And the problem is, look how fast the corrections are, like the COVID correction. The moving average, it depends. Like if you are using the monthly moving average and you are exiting at the next month open, it depends whether that open will be right after the moving average or much below the moving average. The difference can be like a 15% drawdown. We published all kinds of research on that. I know you have too. It drives me crazy. You quantify it very well. You know, I'm just doing some uh, analysis, you know, brief analysis and, and everything. So I started doing data mining. 
and trying to identify a short-term anomalous price action. What year did you begin to work on that, the data mining? About 95. Oh, wow. 95. Okay, great. And then, so what were you using and what was the framework you were using at the time in order to find features? What markets were you looking to trade and how were you thinking about the experimental design? I did some analysis and I found out that in most markets, you have to go like 15 minutes or longer time frames. Uh, the noise was too big. The signal-to-noise ratio was going to zero, you know, below that. So you have to go like 50. But I prefer the daily time frame, end of day. So I started uh, testing some uh, neural networks and uh, machine learning algos. Like I use support vector machines and similar algorithms, but I couldn't find anything that would give me models I could understand. And that was important to you? It was important. I wanted to see the code and understand why this particular strategy should work. What features were you using in these models? There is a hierarchy of features. You start with the high, open, low, close, and you move up. The, the, the primitive features are the open, high, low, close. Anyway, there is nothing else. I mean, in price action, if you want to deal with price, there is nothing else. Anything else you come is an abstraction, is a hypothesis. If you try to look for cause and effect, there is none. There is no cause and effect in price action. So you start and you start building features from that. You identify the features from the data. And this is a very dangerous practice as opposed to a unique hypothesis, like rates go up and I expect bonds to go down. That's a unique hypothesis. Of course, it's not unique in the sense that you didn't make it first. Many have made it. The problem with data mining is very deep besides the deep learning. <laughs> first of all, you data mine and you have your own bias because you are looking, you are trying to identify features. But at the same time, many other people are doing the same thing. So I have come up with this idea of collective data mining bias. You may identify a good strategy today and in the next five minutes, some other person who identifies arbitrages the out the return. There's an element of simultaneous discovery there. So you're sort of assuming that if you're looking at things that are triggering your imagination and causing you to think about potential explanatory variables, then in all likelihood, many other researchers with the same objectives are seeing similar articles and pieces of data that are triggering similar thoughts. And therefore, you're all going to eventually and actually rather quickly converge on the same types of models? Exactly. You made a very nice abstract for a paper. <laughs> <laughs> now you say that. So what is the key? The key is to try to be not only unique in the hypothesis you generate, but also unique in the way you generate them. So say more about that. I'm very curious about what you mean there. 
So you have all these uh, companies, the hedge funds, they get smart graduates out of the school. They play machine learning like Mozart played the piano. But they all use the same techniques. They get the same Python libraries and they apply to the same data. They all read the papers that they all write and then you have the same production and essentially I have showed in some articles very very complicated ways they use replicate a fast moving averages like three or four day moving averages low pass filters they replicate I mean they go through this extremely complicated analysis and application of machine learning and a five-day moving average would do the same thing. They just discover basic convolutions. Yeah, yeah, convolution, yeah, yeah. So I thought I had to develop my own proprietary machine learning algo. That, besides the identification of features, it would work on principles about how the market operates, microstructure. So I did that. I sat down. And it took me five years to develop this. I was working with a person who was at the university, very nice guy, who knew C++ very well. I had a diploma from AT&T. You know, AT&T discovered, developed C language, but I was already behind. You had been programming in Fortran. No, C language. But before that, when you were building your backtesters, oh, I guess you were using TradeStation. Before that, I was using BASIC. It was faster. Just to program moving averages, you only had to add the numbers. The simplest conceivable floating point type computation. Yep. There was no, nothing mysterious. So, so we're working together. You know, he, I was telling him what to do. And, and we, I came up with this algorithm and I built this program. It's the first one. And it had the following features. It would identify these micro patterns and also generate code for TradeStation and Metastock. You remember Metastock? It was uh, some other platforms automatically, which you could take back test and trade if you want. And I have an article like in uh, Active Trader magazine and Stocks and Commodities like in 2002. Now many people told me, why didn't you patent it? If you patent, you have to disclose the algorithm. And then, how do you know who is using it? It's not a car, it's not a Tesla that is driving down the road and you can stop and say, hey, who are you? You're driving the car I developed. You never know who is using it. How can you enforce? If one million people take the algo, you, it's in the patent application and use it. It's a trade secret. I've always wondered about that, you know, because there are some, Shufate has patented the maximum diversification algorithm and Michaud has patented their multivariate, multivariate resampling efficient frontier and stuff like that. But when you publish it, then you no longer control it. Now everyone is using it against you. <laughs> How do they know what the trader portfolio manager in China is doing? And when are they going to find out? How? Models are underdetermined by prices. 
you cannot go back from market behavior and say this model produced it. Now, it's like the metaphor that Nassim Taleb uses to describe the narrative fallacy, where if you've got an ice sculpture and the ice sculpture melts and you've got a puddle of water, it's like trying to say you can know the shape of the ice sculpture by the puddle of water. I'm glad you mentioned Nassim because in every conversation he should be mentioned at least once. <laughs> I'd love to hear more about if you're, I don't know if you're willing to share, which is totally fine. We, we obviously run models. We're not willing to share all of the details either, but I am curious if you could say more about what you mean by, and I may have gotten the word wrong, but micro features or micro patterns or something. You know, in every time frame you look, for instance, daily time frame, maximum is nine bars. Some of them, they look like traditional ones, like island reversals and uh, head and shoulders, but some are quite strange. So it's sort of like the idea of, I just want to make sure I'm, I'm understanding. So you've got open, high, low, close data, you've got nine bars, and it's almost like the number of potential permutations of... No, no, no. That's the naive way. You can do this, but this is the naive way to do it. The other way I'm doing it is it has to be driven by a, an economically valuable metric. Now, I can talk more, but it has to be because permutation is going to give you billions of combinations and the data mining, when you choose the bias is huge because you are choosing survivors, even in the out of sample. If you test billions or trillions of permutations, even if you test out of sample, you are going to find 5% of them that work. But if you do a Benefferoni connection, a correction, data mining bias correction, your significance is zero. With the Bonferroni correction, yeah, because there's so many, there's such a large sample of runs. There's got to be some economic causality or potential economic causality. Is that sort of what you're looking for? No causality. It has to be an economic underpinning of this. And the first way to minimize data mining bias is to use similar features. I see these people and they use like 150 features like GDP and price to earnings, price to book, return for one day, return for five days, return for the year. I mean, you can think of many, 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 many. And the more indicators you use, the higher the data mining bias, because it is easier to find a combination of things that work, even in the out of sample. So the problem with data mining bias and features extracted from the data is to have a sound process of extracting them that makes economic sense. The whole idea of machine learning is the features have to have economic value because the emphasis in the literature, as you know, is on advanced algos. Deep learning, we are now at the deep learning stage and beyond. We started from uh, binary logistic regression and we moved to deep learning. But this is not where the value is. I have found out that if the features have economic value, 
even a binary logistic regression will give good results. And this is the key. So the whole idea, as you know, is feature engineer in a construction. If your features have value, you are okay. I have called this machine learning cannot find gold where there is none. It doesn't matter how much you data mine noise, you're going to end up with noise. So you have to, at the top level, you have to choose your markets carefully. You have to choose your process, your data mine, your machine learning algorithm to be based on a process that has economic value, that is compatible with the market. Not just an arbitrary, you know, neural network that gives you an abstract model. You don't know what it means. So can you give me an example of maybe a simple or obvious pattern or feature that has economic value to help cement the concept? Economic value, let me try to qualify that, conditioned on the data we have. You never know if in the future you will have economic value. And this is the problem, because if you knew that, you print in money. When you say features that have economic value, my immediate assumption was that you were sort of, you were leaning a little bit into the more traditional empirical finance literature, almost like a factor literature where you're sort of saying you would expect higher risk securities to produce higher return because there's economic value in having higher required return or some other sort of economic intuition that would explain why a feature should explain returns. Perfect example. Let me take it down to micro features. If I see a feature that is mean reverting in a market with extreme anti-correlation, I know it has some economic value. As I said before, 70% of the time, down days are followed by up days in the S&P 500. So I look at when people backtest Moving averages, they assume positive autocorrelation. And it just happens that they work because, now we're jumping, because they have been very lucky and the US markets have recovered from large bear markets or corrections with V bottoms. Now, do you know what will happen to trend followers if the US market? goes into a five-year sideways chop. Trend following on U.S. equities will obviously suffer. <laughs> Approximately 40% losses. And you can see an analog in the emerging markets from 2011 to 2016. They move sideways. And I have examples in my blog. The most popular trend following models, they lost from 40, from 30 to 50% in that period, because it's chop. You don't go anywhere. Now, U.S. market, trend followers in the U.S. market have been very, very lucky because, you know, of the large rebounds. You're describing more sort of long only or long flat trend following. Long short does not work anymore. So it really is like you're capturing the drift and you've got sort of a stop on being long invested in the index by virtue of using a moving average to exit. 
when you are superimposing yourself on a geometric Brownian motion, you know the log of the price is random walk plus drift, and you just pray, essentially, that there is positive drift and there is not a crash. It's all praying every day, and praying and praying. Now, let me give you this if you have time. Of course, please. I've got lots of time. I'm finding this really fascinating. From 1960 to 1999, if you bought, if you went long equities, when the return was positive, and stayed until the return got negative, and you switched to short, when the return went negative, and then you repeated this, this is a straight-in strategy, you could have made 30% annualized return before commissions. Over what time horizon when you say the market went up or the market went down? 60 to 2000, 40 years. When you say that the market went up, you went over, up over the last day? Day. That's because the serial correlation was high. And smart people saw that and that's why serial correlation was hard to be trust out. Because that's what now the same system from 2000 to 2020 has generated minus 15% annualized return. <laughs> because serial correlation return switched to negative. Talking about the following, now in the CTA spectrum, where they were trading commodities, there it's a different thing because in commodities there are trends, always, because of economics. But the problem is there the space got too crowded and they were not able to get alpha, only to be a better strategies. And in the last 10 years, they have generated 2% annualized return. Because it's too crowded. Live cattle, you know, and how much money you can, thousands of CTAs, you know, orange juice. That's why many of them have switched to equities now. There is no liquidity. They have liquidity constraints in the CTA series. So I just want to make sure we're tying this back to micro features or micro patterns to this narrative on trend following. And I just want to maybe see if I understand how you're tying the two together. So if you identify that there has been no serial correlation or serial correlation has been negative, and yet you're finding trend following type strategies that appear to be working, then those trend following strategies are probably noise. There's no serial correlation for it to pick up on. And so it's just picking up on random patterns and not economic. There's no economic value there. Am I close on that? That's one aspect. Like when in the past you saw that there was momentum in the returns, you wouldn't trade something that went against it. The same now, but the algorithm has to do it automatically. Besides the features, maybe that's what you were asking, the algorithm should be able to identify the conditions of the markets. And this is what I meant, economic value. Now, let's go one step further. You don't use one feature in our long-short strategies 
we combine these two ensembles. I don't care about the bias. I care about the variance. So say more about that. What do you mean by bias and variance for the people that are not, maybe not familiar with these terms in this context? Well, in machine learning, you trade enough bias with variance. You either get a strategy that is, has a high return with the market, you know, it follows the market, it makes more than the buy and hold. But at the same time, it can give you a very large drawdown, volatility. Or you can elect to go with a strategy that gives you less return, so you miss, you know, all this drift and everything, you don't fit to it, but you get less variance in the returns. Because especially if you are professional these days and you have a drawdown of 20%, you are in trouble. ARKK, when they got to 20%, every, the whole Twitter was about good. Like that ETF has a very high variance. To say the least. <laughs> so I don't care, I will sacrifice my return especially when you go into the market neutral domain, you know, long short, I will sacrifice my return. I will not follow the drift of the market in exchange for lower volatility. When you add numbers that are volatile, random variables, the volatility is reduced by the square root of the number goes right back to Claude Shannon and the information coefficient and then the law of active management. So when I combine these features into an example and I get a directional bias. Now, one feature may say, oh, I'm 100% sure the market will go up. The other feature says, oh, I'm 75. The other says, oh, I'm 55. At the end of the day, you get something they say, the market will go up 53, probability is 53% to go up, you know, when you do all these ensembles. And then this classification, essentially. And then you say, okay, if the directional bias or the, you know, using machine learning terminology, the target probability is higher when you score for a new day, because in machine learning, what are we doing exactly? People don't understand. In machine learning, we are not looking a month. We don't have nearly enough data at a monthly scale to get economic or statistical significance on anything. We are looking at the next day return, the probability of the next day return. And this is much different than TA that they look at prices and they say, oh, Tesla is too high or the market is too high. This is useless in quantum analysis. High price doesn't make any sense. It's the return that you care. And actually that's the a basic difference between traditional market analysis. It's the study of price and volume. And quantum analysis is the distribution of returns and their moments and whether there is distribution and whether the moments exist and uh, all these things that Nassim Taleb is the expert. <laughs> exactly. So I just want to make sure that we cover this idea of bias and variance sufficiently as well in, in a sort of a machine learning context. And I think you did a good job of making it approachable in terms of just people who understand just sharp ratios. If you want to 
harness the drift and minimize the variance. And I think that's useful. I've always sort of thought about the bias variance trade-off in terms of model building as high bias models are models that tend to be simple. They've got a high probability of generalizing, but you're leaving potentially a lot of the information on the table. There's too much compression. Whereas high variance, you are fitting the data to a very high degree. You're extracting a lot of information, but you're also likely mistaking a lot of what is noise for information. And therefore the model is less likely to generalize on data that it hasn't seen before. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're sort of saying that in finance, it's much more preferable to err on the side of having too much bias than it is to err on the side of having too much variance. Is that a fair assertion? Excellent scientific description of the subject. Very scientific. Exactly like you see it in books. And this is the idea. Sharp pressure. The problem. A sharp pressure is roughly, if we say the rate is the free rate is zero, is roughly the mean return divided by the volatility. So let's say that we have a sharp ratio that is 10% mean return by 10% volatility. How much is this? One. Very nice sharp ratio. If you have a strategy and the sharp ratio is one or more, it's very nice. Now let's say that you have 50 divided by 50. This is also one. So now you get your 50, but at the risk of losing 50. Still, the sharp ratio is one. Of course, you have to consider, you know, I don't like the sharp ratio. I use the MAR, annualized return divided by maximum drawdown. I presume you use a Monte Carlo MAR. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the Carlo, uh, you can find the distribution, but I use that. And I don't use the maximum drawdown. I use like 1.5 times the maximum drawdown. So going back to machine learning, and the ultimate strategy you can find from machine learning and the one that broke Quantopian, you remember Quantopian, is the long, short, market neutral. What do I mean like this? You have a big universe of securities and you data mine and you find go long 100 of them and go short 100 of them and you have market neutral and dollar neutral and you don't care if the market goes up or down the strategy makes money and Quantopian spent several years because this is the directive of the person who financed it none other than Steve Cohen yep baseball <laughs> team yes very smart and they spent all this time and they had this they claim 100,000 quants they didn't make it this is the idea so the best machine learning strategies are the ones with the high bias low variance like in 2017, you remember, it was extremely low volatility. The VIX got down to nine. You would read in Twitter all the day the stats. The market hasn't had a 0.5% day in the last two months. How can you make profit? Trend followers made profit by chance because they didn't care. 
doesn't matter how much the market went up in 2017. Machine learning didn't. Market neutral could not make any money. Now, my friend and customer, he goes into Twitter, but he left, Alex, who has given me very, very good ideas, you know, about machine learning. He's an expert, you know, I'm 10% of what he is. He told me machine learning has to have a component of bias. So there is an implicit market view in everything you do, even in machine learning. Machine learning is not the cure for people's inability to understand markets. And we're going to get the library from Google and we're going to put some numbers and we're going to become rich. This is not how it works. You have to take risk. And eventually, as you know, because you are professional, what makes a difference is the market view you have and how that ties with the strategy you have. Because all strategies can be tuned. In the long short, I can say, instead of going long 100 and short 100, I will go long 100 and short 20. The machine learning algo will not tell you what to do. You will tell the machine learning algo what to do. I remember you wrote an article once, or it was so someone else from your organization, that in 2017, many fund managers switched off the strategies. It was the short volatility area. The XIV, until they got the, the turkey problem. <laughs> Nassim's, you know, sudden death one day. <laughs> I use that all the time and I draw a little turkey. <laughs> Love it. It was like February, I remember. February something, all right? And suddenly, you know, it was silence. <laughs> About long volatility. It was a good feature. Long volatility was the best feature at the time. And all the algos, they were taking this feature and actually they were going short volatility with some features from the yield curves. And suddenly, what happened? Boom. You know, XIV went down 96% in one day. I have a volatility long short for UVXY strategy that shows 302% returns a year. You know, if you do the bootstrap and the analysis and everything, there is a 5% probability of a 95% drawdown. I mean, it's crazy. 5% is not small. Would you agree that there may be roles for those types of strategies along as very small components of a much broader ensemble of strategies and where you're constantly rebalancing? If they have sufficient negative correlation and especially conditional negative correlation potential, not like deterministic, but potential at certain times against other strategies in your portfolio, I might be able to see an argument for a small, like a very small allocation if you're going to rebalance. Like Bitcoin, for instance. Bitcoin is like a volatility trade. But why risking losing money? Buffett, rule number one, never lose money. I know, of course, Buffett lost 40 plus percent six or seven times in his career, but I know he, he constantly cites that rule. I actually wanted to probe on one thing that you sort of said in passing, but I think is really an interesting thing to explore because I think by virtue of the way that academic finance operates, almost by necessity, they focus on strategies that have very high 
in sample performance. It's always struck me that strategies that have high bias, in other words, they're simple, relatively simple specification and have high sharp ratios are almost certain to be arbitraged away first. In markets where everyone is constantly trying to arbitrage away opportunity, the most sustainable opportunities are in more esoteric strategies that have lower sharp ratios. They're sort of below the threshold of what would normally be considered interesting by academic finance. To have large ensembles of those barely significant or barely attractive strategies that you put together. And when you put a bunch of sort of marginally attractive strategies together, the ensemble can be quite attractive, but you need a different type of experimental design to engineer that strategy than what the empirical finance community is able to publish papers on. Do you see where I'm going there? Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. And actually you can have two losing strategies and get a winning strategy. You can have all sorts of things and uh, you actually brought a very good example. But the point is, do you have enough good ones or you need to add the Bitcoin to <laughs> and the volatility? <laughs> if you don't have enough good ones, then you have to add those two to get the extra bias and make sure that the others will reduce the variance of that one in case something goes wrong. And actually, that's how many funds work. I mean, they have a, a call it plethora of strategies and they try to switch. And actually, research in machine learning is the voting algorithms to choose at every point which strategy to use or which group they use Markov processes and very advanced mathematics to, let's say you have a pool of 100 strategies and you can use this machine learning like a meta strategy to choose which ones to use in the ensemble at every point. Now you have to separate here. This is, these are good for the large funds, but the retail, you know, the person that has a small account cannot go into these complex schemes, it's purchasing power that the retail will try to find one or two strategies that makes good prospects. They cannot use 10 strategies and also the logistics. But that leaves them exposed to high variance. And that this is why there is so much withdrawal from retail space. It's not because the strategies are bad. Like when I started with a trend, they generate a large drawdown, they quit. And then when they look after, oh, if I have stayed in, I would have recovered. And uh, like the stock market, like the stock market. After 2000, there are two maximum drawdowns of about more than 50%, 50-55. And then you have a few drawdowns of uh, 25 and then recently 33% in a pastille, the price is higher. What is going on? I'm particularly fascinated with this idea of, so there's a feature engineering step, there's a mining step. Let's just assume you sort of identified some features. I'm understanding that you're mining for strategies and you're eliminating strategies that are inconsistent with the regime, which presumes that you're somehow able to sort of estimate the regime that 
we're in. So for example, if you've got some trend following strategies that appear to be useful, but you're in a mean reverting regime, then you would eliminate the trend following strategies. So am I right so far? Is that generally the thinking? Yeah, but the algo will do it, not you personally. What I'm saying is he should be able to do it to have economic value. But how are you identifying that it's a mean reverting regime or it's a positive serial correlation regime and over what number of bars and all that kind of stuff? How are you thinking about those? Con- okay, excellent question. It has to do with the metrics you use to evaluate performance in the ensemble and the ensemble. It has to do with the metrics you use. If you use metrics like in typical machine learning, they use area under the curve, they use uh, success, uh, confusion metrics, and uh, you know, I don't remember the, all the terminology. I have gotten away from this because these don't mean anything. You have a very high hit rate, doesn't mean anything. Yeah, the problem with the confusion matrix approach is that you're giving equal weight to positive errors and negative errors. Obviously, if you're just missing an opportunity, that's a different type of, there's a different penalty for missing an opportunity than there is for taking a trade and being wrong. Exactly. In trading, what counts, there are three quantities that are inextricably related. It's the hit rate, the payoff ratio, and the profit factor. And I have derived a formula 20 years ago that relates them. The win rate is equal to the profit factor divided by profit factor plus payoff ratio. And I called it in one of my books, the profitability rule. And this profitability rule, now if the the payoff ratio is equal to one, you get hit rate equals one divided by one plus the payoff ratio. This gives you the lower bound of the hit rate for a given payoff ratio to break even. Now, this is how I started to build the algorithms. You have to understand how. Now, this also formula explains why trend following is hard. Trend following is hard because the payoff varies. It's varies. It's variable. It's stochastic. It's a random variable. So if you have a certain hit rate, trend followers say, oh, I can be 35% right and still make money because there are trends. Wait a second. If the payoff ratio is not enough, you are not going to make money. Maybe you need a hit rate of 60% to make money. And what determines the payoff ratio? The volatility of the trends. That will be determine the magnitude of the payoffs if you're when you're right. You may hit a stop loss if the volatility because trend followers use stop loss. Mini reversion traders do not use stop loss because stop loss in mini reversion destroys the profitability right away. That's why after 2000 the markets. When they became mean reverting, they also have gotten extremely risky because you cannot, if you put stop loss, there is your profitability is gone in a mean reversion regime. In trend following, it is necessary because you may have a chop 
and you have to protect yourself. Small losses, but in the next long trend, you make up for them and then you make your alpha. Now, I wrote an article, trends and trend following is not the same thing. Some people think trend following and trends is the same thing. If there are trends, trend followers will make money. No, it's not the same thing. Like mean reversion and mean reverting strategies is not the same thing. Because you may get mean reversion, but the market can go so low that when it bounces back and you get your exit signal, it hasn't recovered the loss. So all these, a machine learning algorithm, to return back to your original question, has to implicitly account for all these things. Not explicitly, implicitly, and have the strength. Now, to go to the next step, the bias, tell me when you are out of time, because this can go for many days. <laughs> Always there will be bias, data mining bias. The problem is how much. Some people say, I want to measure the data mining bias. You are wasting your time, I'm sorry. You have to have an algorithm that minimizes the data mining bias in the first place. And then pray to your gods, whatever that is, because everything you do is conditioned on past da data. Then another important thing, the more you reuse the data, you get data snooping. So I wrote a book, Fooled by Technical Analysis. And there I have a diagram and I show that data mining bias has three components. Overfitting. You tweak the moving average, for example, periods until you get your results. Selection bias. You select the best system that uses those moving average. And data snooping bias. Every time you reuse the data, you increase the probability of finding a random system by chance, you know. And this probability goes to one if you are very persistent. So I wrote an article once that people learn in school to be persistent in life. I said backtesting people should not be per persistent in life. If they find something that doesn't work, they should forget it immediately. Don't try to fix it. You are just increasing the data mining bias. Use the out of sample only once. If the idea doesn't work, you came up with an idea, let's say a unique hypothesis, that if the Kardashians speak today and Kathy Wood says, I love Bitcoin, and Elon Musk says to the moon, then the market will go up. And you backtest for the period these people exist and in the markets they are popular and it doesn't work. How do you determine that something doesn't work? What's the right sort of experimental design to test a hypothesis in your opinion? For me, as a retail, I'm a practitioner above all. And I don't care about fancy terminology. I don't care about papers. I don't care about what professors say. For me, it doesn't work. Is I lose money. 
but over what time frame and how are you observing losing money? Is it like only in live trading or is it in the out of sample or how are you setting up the design? I have uh, seven weekly strategies, you know, and I have a few customers, you know, very dedicated people. They look at them. I don't know what they do. Probably they laugh. <laughs> That's why they pay a subscription to laugh at me. <laughs> people go to see a comedy. And they pay because it's an entertainment. And one is a trend following with volatility adjustment because trend following should be part of every portfolio. That's where the big money comes from. Now, that's not data mining bias. Oh, well, it has one data mining, one of the strategies. The other one is mean reversion. These are weekly time frame. All the entries and exits Monday morning, if you get a good price. <laughs> It's a mini reversion in the spice. And then I have a cross-sectional momentum, three of them, using different ETFs and some of the same. Because cross-sectional momentum, in my opinion, for myself, should be in my portfolio. Cross-sectional momentum is a very powerful concept. I mean, the people who discover it go brilliant. And what does it do? It moves around. It tries to find across many markets where the returns are, where, where the alpha. And the strategy that is doing best year to day is a cross-sectional momentum strategy. And, and the mini reversion is doing well. But the mini reversion is only the stays in the market about 40% of the time. The problem with the cross-sectionals, they are 100% in the market. Then I have a mini reversion in Dow stocks, which is working well, and long short with data mining. And this is the portfolio of strategies. And this has ensemble. Always the ensemble of volatility is very low. Maximum you can get is like 15% in the worst case scenario of these strategies. Now, these strategies for me have some economic value, but if these strategies don't work. To go back to your question, how do I decide they don't work? I set a maximum heat threshold. It's where I start sweating. And for me, that's 10% for each strategy. If they lose 10%, they are pause mode, and then I monitor them for two or three months, and if they continue to deteriorate, I say, oops, mean reversion at the strategy level, out. And I find another one to replace it. But it's already one part of the ensemble. When you say you replace it with a new one, how are you finding a new one? And then you mentioned in sample, out of sample. I'm just wondering how that process of testing goes for you. That's apart from data mining. The data mining is the long short. From the other strategies, I have some ideas about the market. Like all of us, if commodities, when the dollar, I want to put dollar and commodities and oil and bonds in the same cross-section strategy. Because I have noticed that when yields rise, you know, the commodities start going up. These general ideas, and I have a large 
large database with strategies for this. And I test them, you know, I test them in sample first, out of sample. If I use ETFs, but I try to use the indexes to test them that go far, more data. Like, for instance, I like the strategies that between low volatility S&P 500 and uh, high beta. And now high beta was doing very well, and now there is a switch. Suddenly, low volatility <laughs> became popular <laughs> after it was beaten up for a while. And there is not enough data. Those started, you know, like in 2006, I don't remember. But the indexes, they go back a while, so I can test uh, with more data. I think, from this point of view, the unique hypothesis, value versus growth, low volatility versus high volatility, are two areas where a lot of rotation could take place in the future. The data mining is every day I run the S&P 500 stocks through my program and I determine the features and then I select five from the long part and five from the short. Now this strategy did extremely well in the downturn last year daily returns of 2%, 3%, 6%. But then by September, where the short covering started, the stocks, they started rebounding, it has stagnated. But the long short is a kind of, it provides a little bit of positive convexity in case of a huge downturn. At least you hope. Is that the way you've designed it to produce positive convexity? No, it's not. It's because of the market. The short side always falls a lot more in downturns than the long side. You see, if I have five long and five short, and I manage to get four of the shorts right and one of the longs right, it makes a huge difference because of the averages. So there were days that they were like, it got four correct in the long side and five correct in the downside. In a downturn, if I can get one stock right that it will go up, it makes a big difference to the return. So when you run your software, what's going on under the hood there? Whatever you think you can share. It's in my website. It describes a lot of things, not the algorithm. It loads the data. It has a testing sample and a training sample. It finds these features for every stock, each, each stock. It uses 10 uh, clusters of features for each one. By clusters, I mean these are features with common characteristics. Like, for instance, even if you have open, high, low, close, you can have some features that have only close. If you have first up, second down, third up, fourth down, that's a mean reversion type of thing. It calculates all these thousands of features and then it finds these ensembles and determines the probability. I call it directional probability, just to make sense. The academics call it a thousand different fancy names. Many other different fancy names, like target labels and everything. And 
If you want to do machine learning, it generates this in uh, files and you can go ahead with the algorithms, take the files, and, but I usually don't do that because I have found out that if something doesn't work on the basic level, it doesn't matter how sophisticated you get on top of it. If something doesn't work fundamental level, it doesn't matter how hard you try on top of it, you are not going to get anything. It has to be sound at the fundamental level. So it doesn't matter if I take if it doesn't work and then I take the files and I run some machine learning to do meta labeling and all this new fancy terminology. If the features already don't have economic value, chances are very low you will get something. And you're determining whether they have economic value automatically using the algorithm? The algorithm is designed with economic value in mind. It conveys the understanding of the developer of the algo about how the market works. It's not a generic algo. It's a special purpose. You remember the risk processors, like you had the CPUs and then you had the risk processors that they did specific like for instance signal processing, Kalman filters, they use them in communications. Like this, when you choose a generic machine learning algo, it's like using a general CPU. My algorithm is like a special processor, you know, designed. I have put my understanding about the market. So it's esoteric, idiosyncratic, idiosyncrasy. And that's how it works with the data mining. The demand is very low for these things. And the reason it's very low is people are not willing to put the effort necessary to understand and work with them. People want things served on a golden platter. They call you and say, tell me the secret. Okay, buy Bitcoin. Okay, thank you. <laughs> We're going to be rich. This is not investment advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is not investment advice. No, I'm not saying, I didn't say that. I saw it written someplace. I know, I'm just joking. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So nothing I said here constitutes investment advice and uh, everybody knows to do their homework. I wish I could go into more details, but there is a certain threshold. Absolutely fascinating. Lots to chew on at my end. I'm sure you're going to give listeners a great deal to think about at their end as well and probably prompt an enormous flurry of questions. And angry people. <laughs> Maybe, but you've been extremely generous with your sharing and with your wisdom. Thank you so much for spending two hours with me. And I hope that at some point in the near future, we can continue this conversation. Thank you very much, Adam. I appreciate Thank you for the invitation. And I wish you best success with your trading and everything you do. Thanks, Mike. We'll carry on other conversations on Twitter, etc. And in the meantime, all the best and thanks very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestResolve and hitting the follow button.
If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.